Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for you speaking your word to us and giving us your word. And we ask now that by your spirit, you would open our hearts, enable our minds to understand your word, to be transformed and changed by your word. And so we completely are dependent upon you and come before you trusting you in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, friends, hear the reading of God's Word upon which our teaching is based this morning, which, as we are continuing in our study of Paul's letter to the Romans, comes from Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 17. Paul says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, and so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. You know, in life, we all get excited about certain things. Hanging out with friends, a good meal. Maybe you're excited, I don't know, about the Chiefs and the Patriots tonight and the Saints and the Rams, football. New movie coming out. TV show you've been wanting to see, sporting event, whatever it is, a vacation, a trip you've been saving up for, planning, working out the details, where will we stop, all that. But we have things that we anticipate, that we look forward to. For me, one of, um, just a great memory for me, and, and as you know, my dad now has pretty advanced dementia. But one of the things I remember from growing up with my dad that is just such a fond memory for me is playing golf with him. I grew up pretty much, I'd say, about age 12, he started teaching me the game of golf. You'd think I'd be better by now. I've been playing golf since age 12, and I still rarely break 90. I don't know if that tells you something about how hard the game of golf is or how bad I really am. But some of my fondest memories in my life are looking forward to the times, and my dad would have some various connections and be able to get us on some pretty good golf courses. Now, I don't know how many of you are into golf. This may be meaningful or meaningless to you. I'm really not sure, but I'm willing to step out and risk it anyway. For instance, in Philadelphia, where we grew up, he got us on Marion Country Club, which is a historic Bobby Jones golf course where a couple of U.S. Opens have played. I'll never forget being able to play that golf course. And one of the times, because my parents retired down here to St. Augustine in 1991, so years before I came to Spruce Creek, 
One of the times we were vacationing down here. He had to get grandson time in with Joel, you know, so we would do that. And he told me, he said, Jeff, we're going to be able to play the TPC Sawgrass Golf Course up in Pontevedra. Tremendous opportunity. I couldn't believe we were getting to that. I remember being so excited for that particular vacation, counting down the weeks and the days, and it finally came. And yes, I birdied the 17th hole, which I don't know if you watch it on TV. It's the island green. I took my iron out and put it within about 12 feet and even sunk the putt. Now, you sense how I'm telling this story? What is my tone? I'm kind of excited even remembering that story from 20-plus years ago. What is Paul's tone in Romans chapter 1, this section of chapter 1? He is very excited to be able to come and visit Rome and visit his friends there and visit the church there. The tone that he's, think about it, he's apologetic about not being able to come. He's saying, I'm eager to come, not only preach the gospel, but that you and I would encourage each other. It would be great to do life together. We would impart some spiritual gift to one another. We'd be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. In fact, I thank my God whenever I remember you in my prayers. Your faith is being proclaimed. If any of us have the thinking or feeling about Paul, that he's some stoic, austere theologian. Look at the humanity of Paul. He genuinely likes people. He genuinely can't wait to be with the church at Rome. He's exuberant. You may even think, and maybe you think that I'm presenting it this way, that he's a bit over the top in his excitement. But why is he so excited? Why is he exuberant? The key is his view his feeling, the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to focus on verses 16 and 17. I just basically gave you verses 8 to 15, by the way. Okay? So it's not like I'm ignoring those verses, but here's the sum- sometimes interpretation we make it more difficult than it really is. Because verses 8 to 15 is Paul says, I'm thankful for you. I want to come see you. I'm grateful. Now here's why. Verse 16, he says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes first for the Jewish person and then for the rest of the universe, the Gentile people. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed for faith and from faith. For that is written, and he's quoting Habakkuk here, the righteous shall live by faith. These two verses are his thesis, and what he's, this is what the letter to the Romans is all about. This is his thesis that he is expositing, that he'll be showing, beginning, and we'll look at it next week in verse 18, why we need the gospel, how the gospel justifies us, how the gospel leads us to a life where we're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He'll lead us through, but the thesis of the entire letter to the Romans is found here in verses 16 and 17. He is telling us, because of what he believes about the gospel, why he's so exuberant about it to come share it and proclaim it and preach it to the Romans. And in these verses, he tells us three things. He tells us that the gospel is something, that the gospel does something, and the gospel reveals something. In other words, it is something. It's the power of God. It does something. It brings us salvation. And it reveals something, the righteousness 
of God. And it's real interesting, just kind of in the structure of the text and how the text flows. And this is why I love reading and preaching on the Apostle Paul. All of these points build on one another, almost like a great crescendo, like Paul's composing his letter like a great orchestra leader. And he starts out small, and he builds, and he builds. Because he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Notice the word for. He's giving the reason. For it does something. It, it, for it is something. It is the power of God. And then he says, for it does something. For the salvation of everyone who believes. And then he says, one more time, it reveals something. For. These four always are building upon it. Reveals the righteousness of God. So let's explore in a few minutes here each of these. And friends, let's pray. Remember when I preached two weeks ago, I said, here's, here's 2019. Let's make our theme, not our resolution, but our commitment, our theme, remembering the gospel. So let's really pray that we'd be changed by God's word and that our lives would be centered upon and exuberant about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse 16. The gospel is something. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God. Now remember here, Paul has given us the reason for his determination and resolution to get to Rome in his statement I am not ashamed of the gospel. We may ask the question, why is he putting that in kind of a negative form? He could have pretty much said the same thing in the sense of, I'm excited for the gospel, I'm proud of the gospel, I'm exuberant, but he puts it in a negative form. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I love how one writer put it. He said, the emotion of shame with reference to the gospel when confronted with the pretensions of human wisdom and power, betrays unbelief in the truth of the gospel. And thus, the absence of shame is the proof of faith. See, Paul is eager to demonstrate his faith because as the passage unfolds, as the letter unfolds, he will be insisting on the necessity of faith. So the passage contains a great unfolding of the reason for Paul's determination, excitement, eagerness, and resolution to come to them to preach the gospel. Why is he so ready to preach the gospel? Well, he believes in it. He's not ashamed of it. He trusts it. He believes, now listen to these words carefully, he believes it is the actual power of God. Do we understand how significant that is? Do we really hear that? The gospel is the power of God. Now, I know I've said this many, many times before, and maybe I'm, I'm kind of still, it's almost like it's not that I intellectually need convincing, and I really don't believe you need intellectual convincing, but we need it to almost be drilled into our hearts that the gospel doesn't describe the power of God. Like you'd look at a beautiful painting, I mean, I'm not an art historian, I don't know a lot about art, but I can certainly appreciate good art. And you can describe it. You describe its tone, you describe its mood, you describe what it's trying to convey and what it's trying to communicate. Paul doesn't say the gospel describes the power of God. You could also say something is about something. So you might come to me and you say, Jeff, I really like the show This Is Us on television. And I may go, well, tell me about it. You say, this is us about a family and their kids and Jack Pearson and this and that. That's not the gospel. 
Paul says the gospel doesn't describe the power of God. The gospel is not about the power of God. The gospel is the actual power of God released in the proclamation of the message. And the Greek word that is used there, and I know I've told you this before, but again, I want, I'm drilling this in to all of us, myself included. The Greek word is the word dunamis, from which we get our English word dynamite. Now imagine right now if I, you know, gotta love this pulpit, right? It's got like these little cubicles and drawers and stuff like that. Matt, what would you do? I just want you to picture this. See, this is the participant. I want you to engage with me in this sermon. If right now I pulled out something and it wasn't my bulletin, it was sticks of dynamite, TNT. And I pulled it off and I came down, I walked down from the pulpit and I walked, and maybe I got in between Shana and Drew. And they're going, oh, nice. And I put that TNT right there and I lit the fuse. How would you react? Now, I'm going to wager something. I don't think Shana and Drew would be the only ones moving at about 30 miles an hour, hightailing it. I have a feeling wherever you are in this sanctuary, you're not sitting there calmly going, good point. See, I know how Presbyterians react. My good friend Steve Childers, I'll give this kind of as an illustration. He tells the story. He says, you know, Presbyterians are along the lines of we'll hear a point, we'll hear the gospel, and, you know, we'll kind of look at our spouse, our neighbor, whoever's sitting next, and we'll just kind of go, hmm, interesting. The gospel is the power, the dynamite of God. One of the great, I think, great fiction writers is Annie Dillard. And I don't know if you've ever, she's not a theologian, but she's a Christian fiction writer. And in her book, Teaching a Stone to Talk, she says this. She says, why do people in church seem like cheerful, brainless tours, tourists in a packaged tour of the absolute? Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews, for the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us to where we can never return. Friends, do you hear that? Do you get that? The gospel is that power, the actual power of God. The gospel is the message. We're saved through the message of the gospel. It is his omnipotence. Somehow, you talk about a mystery when we enter into this time of both proclaiming and hearing the power of God. The gospel is something. He builds. The gospel is something because it does something. Look at the rest of verse 16. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God. And again, for the salvation of everyone who believes. Now listen to that. The gospel is the omnipotence, the dynamite of God 
to produce something. Salvation. Now I want you to think about something. If it takes the, the actual power, the actual omnipotence of God to save us, is it not utterly, utterly absurd to ever think or act like we can save ourselves? I mean, think about it. God is saying to effect salvation. In fact, this is a statement, If believe it or not, this is a statement about the sinfulness of sin and how sinful we really are. Because Paul is saying here it takes the actual power of God, which he's equated with the gospel, to effect salvation. Nothing else can effect salvation. Not creation, not any demonstrations of power, not turning water into wine, not walking on water, not even raising the dead. The message of the gospel is the power of God, and it takes the very exercise of the power of God to save us. How absurd is it for us to think that we can save ourselves? Now, there are two sides of this salvation. First, we are saved from sin and death. When he says, power of God for salvation, Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 reads, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. And the second side of salvation is that we are saved unto something. The second part of that verse in Colossians 1.13 says, and he has brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In other words, when the gospel, the power of God, does something for salvation, it does two things. It saves us from, th- from something. It saves us from ourselves. It saves us from sin. It saves us from hell. It saves us and rescues us from death. But it actually does something else. It's more than just positional or information. It saves us to transfer us into the realm, the age, the kingdom of God. And then notice something else. It's not automatic. The text does not read that it is the power of God unto salvation automatically for everyone. It is only operative for everyone who believes. And so thus Paul is talking about the necessity of faith. That salvation has no reality or meaning apart from faith. John Murray, commenting on this, says in his commentary on the book of Romans, says the concept of salvation developed in this epistle, therefore, is the power of God operative unto salvation through faith. And so the text says everyone who believes, regardless, you know, for the Jew first and then the Gentile, that means regardless of race, regardless of heritage, regardless of class, regardless of gender, regardless of background or pedigree or achievement, or political affiliation, or culture. Again, as one commentator says, wherever there is faith, there the omnipotence of God is operative unto salvation. Now let me make a very important point here. Because you might be sitting there and you might be thinking, wait a second, my faith is not very strong. I don't have a lot of faith. Paul here is not talking about the quality, or the quantity, or the amount of your faith. The faith that saves depends solely upon the object of your faith. For it to be a faith operative for salvation, it requires the correct object, and that object is Jesus Christ. 
It's the object of your faith, not the strength of your faith, not the amount of your faith, not a good faith or a bad faith, not a, on a one to 10 scale, I've got a 12 faith or I've got a point, little point three faith. It is what is your faith connected to? Because it is only Jesus Christ who saves. It's the object of your faith. And I love, and I've given you this illustration before, I love how Tim Keller puts it. Tim Keller says, I want you to visualize it this way. It's like two men who both approach two ladders. So they both approach two objects. One approaches boldly, confidently, runs up that ladder. Great strength, great assurance. The other is timid. He's shy. He's got doubts. Will that ladder hold me? But he still reaches out, grabs the rung, puts them up. They both go up their respective ladders. But one ladder's rungs are weak and can't hold them. The other ladder's rungs are strong and they can do what they promise to do and hold the man as he climbs up. Dr. Keller makes the point, what matters is not the strength of the faith, not the amount of the faith, but the object of the faith. Friends, we have to ask ourselves, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That salvation is only from Jesus Christ. Is your faith in Jesus Christ? So we've seen that the gospel is something. It's the power of God, that it's for something. The salvation of everyone who believes. And why is this? Now the final part of our building. Why is the gospel the power of God unto the salvation of everyone who believes? Because it reveals something. Verse 17 says, For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, or from faith and for faith, Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Remember last week I mentioned how Paul in his preaching the gospel is not preaching or inventing a new thing. That the gospel is rooted in the soil of the Old Testament. Well, it's pretty amazing how in these verses, verses 16 to 17, Paul is bringing together four key ideas which are rooted in the Old Testament. He's talking about the power of God. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about revelation. And he's talking about the righteousness of God. So, for instance, if you think of Psalm 98, verses 1 and 2, you see all four of these ideas come together when the psalmist, leading the people and calling the people to worship, says, Sing to the Lord a new song. For he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm, power, symbols of power, have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known, there's revelation, and revealed his righteousness to the nations. Or to give you another example, in Isaiah 46, verse 13, he says, I am bringing my righteousness near. It is not far away. And my salvation will not be delayed. I will grant salvation to Zion, my splendor to Israel. Now look at this. I don't want to over-exaggerate this, but in the language of the Old Testament, salvation and the righteousness of God are used as parallel expressions conveying basically the same idea or thought. So when Paul says that the righteousness of God is revealed, he means much more than just information being disclosed. 
He's not just talking about, I'm giving you good information for you to receive or accept. The force of the concept has a much more dynamic meaning. So again, as John Murray writes, he says, when Paul speaks of the righteousness of God being revealed, he means that it was to be revealed in action and operation. The righteousness of God was to be made manifest with saving effect because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is actively and dynamically brought to bear upon man's sinful situation. So in other words, something real happens. It's not just the giving of information. This is why the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So what is it that happens? For us to understand this, we need to know what does Paul mean by this phrase, the righteousness of God? And boy, has a lot of ink been spilled over discussing this phrase. So for instance, is it, as some may say, the, an attribute of God? Sure seems like it could be just a plain face value meaning, the righteousness of God. So it's his justice, his faithfulness, his righteousness, his kind of, his morality. So then it would read the attribute of the righteousness of God. Now I'm not sure about this. Of course the text is not denying this, but look at the text. If it's just an attribute of God, how does an attribute of God dynamically affect salvation? If it's a righteousness that is revealed in the gospel, making the gospel the power of God for our salvation. And this is where I tend to agree with those commentators, commentators like John Stott and Martin Luther, who say that this righteousness from God is a right status with God. It is a word meaning having a right or acceptable status or position before God. Meaning on the one hand, you have no debts or liabilities to God. Part of your right status is that you have been forgiven. The debt of your sin has been paid. Your guilt and your shame have been removed. They all plunged into the very heart and life and humanity of Jesus on the cross. So your record, look over your life, your record as good or bad as you may think it is, has nothing in it to jeopardize your relationship to God. It is a God righteousness. It is Christ's actual righteousness that, as Paul will explain and unfold later in the letter, is actually credited to us. That's why in the scriptures it is often contrasted with our own righteousness. Think about how Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 3 when he says, and he's part of his prayer, his testimony, he says, may I be found in him not having a righteousness of my own, not counting on my own record, not counting on my own morality, not counting on my own achievements, not having a righteousness or a status of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. This is so important. Listen to how Martin Luther classically put it when he said the righteousness of faith, this thing called Christian righteousness, must be distinguished from the rest because it works in a completely different way from the others. 
says the other kinds of righteousness we can work at ourselves by our own strength. But this Christian righteousness, which he calls the greatest of all, he says God puts it on us without our ever lifting a finger. We do nothing for it, which is why he called it a passive righteousness. It is the perfect record of all that Christ did in living and dying. I love how one pastor put it when he said the essence of the Christian faith is to say that he is good enough and I am in him. See, think about your life and think about it this way because it gets manifested or expressed most largely in our relationships. Why we're afraid to give ourselves to others. Why we're afraid to come out of our comfort zone. Why we're afraid to try something new. Why we're afraid of how we might look or what others might think of us. We're always trying to prove our adequacy. We're always trying to prove ourselves good enough. This message of Christian righteousness, Christ's righteousness, is saying, look at Jesus' life and death and resurrection. He is good enough. He relates to God and others absolutely without sin and perfectly. And that record, that righteousness is yours. And what do you do for it? You do nothing. You receive it as a gift. Do you know how life-changing this could be if we would tap in? This is why this is the power of God, the dynamite of God. Saying Jesus is good enough and we are in him. Think about it. I just want to give some scriptural illustrations of the implications of this. Think back to Jesus' baptism. Remember when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River? What happened at Jesus' baptism? Was it just a calm, sunny day? Should I give a golf illustration again? They were just out for a leisurely walk on the, you know, playing nine holes. The heavens were rent open. You need to enter into just how cataclysmic The scene was, and it was rent open because at that moment, a voice from heaven, you've got the triune God active here because Jesus is being baptized, the Spirit comes on him as a dove, anointing him for his mission, and the Father speaks from heaven, saying, you are my son, whom I love. Now listen carefully to these next words. With you I am well pleased. Now, I want you to think about something for a second. What do you think it feels like for God the Father to be pleased with, to delight in, to be overjoyed with, to enjoy the company and the presence and the life of Jesus? Now, where are you found if you're a Christian right now? Paul said, may I be found in him. I mean, when you think about the implications of that, of course you're going to say, not having a righteousness of my own. May I be found in... What do you want? Your righteousness? May I be found in him? Because if you are in Christ, the heavens are rent open, and God is saying, you're in my son. I love you. I am well pleased with you. I want you to just use your imaginations for a second and begin to think, how does it feel to have the God of the universe say, I am overjoyed in your presence. I take great pleasure in you. You bring me awesome delight. Does that not wait? Or do we, 
Good point. <laughs> I'm sorry for yelling, but part of me just sits there and goes, this is mind-blowing. I mean, maybe you all have lives where you're used to people just enjoying you so richly all the time. I mean, I've tasted a little bit of what that means from time to time. But I want you to think about something. This is why Evie and I, we share our favorite verse. I've shared this with you before, but I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I will share it with you again. Zephaniah 3.17 is our all-together, all-time favorite verse where he says, the Lord, I don't even need to look it up in my Bible. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. And the last promise, he will rejoice over you with singing. Uh, Friends, I'm afraid we can't wrap our minds around that. You know, we sounded pretty good singing, Oh God, our help in ages past. You belted it out nicely. I enjoyed that. Can you? I just want you to dream and imagine a little bit what it's like for God to not just be happy with you because you're in Christ, you have his righteousness, but to rejoice over you with singing. That's what the gospel reveals. The gospel is the power of God. It changes everything. It will change your self-image, your self-concept. It will change how you relate to others. It will change your willingness to give of yourself to others, to learn. And that's the process of sanctification. Why? Because we have Christ's righteousness credited and declared to us, allowing God to richly enjoy us and delight in us. Jesus is good enough. God says, I'm well pleased with you, and we are in him. Listen to how John Bunyan put it in his classic book, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Bunyan writes, every little touch would hurt my tender conscience. But one day as I was passing through a field, suddenly I thought of a sentence, your righteousness is in heaven. And with the eyes of faith, I saw Christ sitting at God's right hand. And I suddenly realized, there is my righteousness. Whenever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say, where is your righteousness? For it was right before him. And I saw that my good frame of heart could not make my righteousness better, nor a bad frame of heart could not make my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Lord, may Spruce Creek Church embrace, and may we, the members of Spruce Creek Church, embrace the fact that Christ is our righteousness. Teach us what are the implications of that for how we display Jesus by how we relate to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go before the Lord in a time of prayer. And one of the things I want us to focus our prayer time on this morning is that the third Sunday of January, historically, um, the church has acknowledged something they call Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And largely it is because of the tragedy of abortion, and that tragedy spreads so much. It's not just the unborn, but the tragedy it does to human lives. And think about Jesus's words in John chapter 10, when he says, the thief 
comes to steal and kill and to destroy. I have come to give life and to give it to the full. God has made man in his own image, and the dignity of life is absolutely foundational to Christian truth, to the revelation of the Bible. We are to dignify all life. So I want us in our time of prayer to focus on, yes, the the horror and the tragedy. I want us to lament over this, but lament how so many lives, lament over how many people are living in guilt when forgiveness can be offered how the dignity of life is crushed in so many different ways and how Jesus came to give life. Let us honor the dignity of life in all of our relationships. Would you pray with me? Father, we pause to acknowledge and think about, to think through the implications of things like you made man in your own image, in your likeness. You made them male and female. You made them to reflect your glory. You created us, as Psalm 8 says, a little bit lower than the angels. Have we ever begun to conceive the implications of those words? We're created with such dignity. And this is every person, this is every human being, whether they're believers or not, every human being, unborn and born, have that dignity. Forgive us, Lord, for our negligence, Forgive us, Lord, for the words we speak that tear down people rather than honor their dignity. Even when we are speaking truth, which we must, forgive us when our words come across tearing down the dignity of other persons and not building them up. Lord, we pray for this nation and we pray for the tragedy and the horror of abortion. We pray for people who feel this is such a complicated, it it seems simple in one area and it's complicated in another. We pray for people who feel so hopeless and so helpless that they have nowhere to turn. I thank you, and I want to pray very specifically for ministries like Resources for Women and Grace House that are offering relationship and help and partnership and coming alongside people who feel like they have nowhere to turn. I thank you for Spruce Creek's partnership with these ministries. I pray that we would continue to do that and be involved with them. So I pray, Father, for their their board of directors and those, I think, in our church of Patty Buckley, who works for Resources for Women. I pray for her and her ministry of advocacy there. And I thank you for that. And I would pray, Father, that you would turn the hearts of leaders to overturn Roe versus Wade, to change that law. I pray, Father, for the church to enter into persuasion and conversation and talk. So, Lord, I lift up this very, very significant and important issue. And I pray, Father, I think of the rest of the church and I think of our family here. I thank you for the recovery from surgeries. I pray, Father, for those who are facing uncertain times ahead. I pray, Father, for the ministry of Spruce Creek Church and our being founded upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.